when we bought our house, we went through the loan approval process like, like everyone else does. And when the loan was approved, we went to the bank and we signed more forms, I think, than I've ever signed at one single sitting in my entire life. But when we signed those forms, uh, we were making uh, two basic uh, promises, I suppose. Uh, the first one is that we would repay the loan. Uh, the second promise we were making was that if we didn't repay the loan, we would get out of the way so they could come and take our house from us. That's pretty much what you're signing. In other words, what we did was we signed both uh, we are a pledge, but we also signed a curse in the sense that the pledge was we would repay, the curse being that we would lose our home if we didn't. Now, if you think about it, that's what happens anytime you sign any kind of document like that. In other words, if you buy a car... When you sign for that car, you are saying, I will repay, or you're going to come repossess it. If you uh, file your taxes, when you sign the form, you say, these numbers are correct, or I understand, if I'm not honest, I could go to jail by signing this. If you sign a contract for a job, you are saying, I will perform these duties, but you're also saying, I understand that you will fire me if I don't. So anything that you sign that way, you're signing a pledge, but you're also signing a curse to go along with it. Uh, last week in Nehemiah, when we looked at chapter 9, we saw where the people were renewing, or rather confessing, uh, their sins. There's this big national confession where they uh, confessed their sins, but they also confessed who God was, and they confessed their faith in Him. But as we come to the last verse in chapter 9 and then all of chapter 10, uh, we find the people are renewing their faithfulness to God. But they're also renewing the covenant that God has made with them and with their forefathers. So as we start out, we're going to look at the very last verse of chapter 9. It says, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. And then the beginning of chapter 10, the, uh, verses 1 through 27, basically is a list of the people that, that signed, beginning with Nehemiah. But then when we get to verse 28, it says, The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. Uh, these signers, again, making a pledge, and agreeing to a curse. The pledge is to follow the law of God. The curse is to suffer the consequences if they don't. Now, the consequences aren't enumerated here, but I think they had a pretty good idea of what that might look like if they failed to follow God's law. But what they're signing here is more than just a legal document. Certainly, they're indicating their seriousness to follow through by putting their names on it. But this agreement is more than that. It's basically an agreement that they want to completely change the way that they live. In, in other words, this agreement is to be life-altering for them. That they want to live in a life-altering relationship with God. 
or they'll be prepared to suffer the consequences if they don't. Charles Swindoll makes the point that the people are erecting a written monument, a a rallying point uh, for them and for their entire families. And what they're saying here is, is that, look, this is what we promised God. And this distinguishes us as his people. And that we will live by this, whether anyone else does or not. And that this is our guide. And this is our philosophy of life. And they did it willingly. And they did it with a full knowledge of what they were doing. And a full knowledge of the consequences if they didn't. Now, verse 29 is just a general promise to obey all of God's commands. But what follows are three specific areas that they felt a need to really renew in the covenant with God. They're related to three different areas. And while we are not under the Old Testament law, there's a whole lot for us to learn and a whole lot of application for us in our lives today. Here's the first promise they made. The people said, we promise to follow God's law related to family. Verse 30 of Nehemiah 10 says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. And the basis for this in the law of God is found in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, 4, and 6. It says, do not intermarry with them. This is when they take possession of the land. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Why is God so forceful about this? Why is this so important to God? This idea that he doesn't want his people to marry unbelievers, people outside of the faith. Well, because it's serious to him. I mean, for one thing, he says very plainly that one of the dangers is that the people that are not of faith that you might marry would draw the person of faith away from their faith, that there's a real danger there. Plus, these are God's chosen people. The Israelites, they're God's chosen people. And they want to to be distinctive among all the peoples of the earth. So those are important things to God. But you know, this is not just an Old Testament issue. Actually, it's quite common today. You have a non-Christian and a Christian dating. One who believes, one who doesn't believe. They date each other. They have fun while they're out. Find out they might, you know, like the same kind of music. They might enjoy the same kind of movies, those kinds of things. And then it gets serious, and they fall in love. So what to do? What to do? Is it, is it okay today for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Here's what 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14 says. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And I know, you you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This person I'm dating, now they're not a Christian, but they're not wicked. They're they're not wicked. They're, They're sweet. They're loving. They're nice to me. I love them a lot. 
Eugene Peterson paraphrases uh, one of these verses by saying, he says, don't become partners with those who reject God. And you might say, well, wait a minute, we have so much in common. We have so much in common. Well, maybe you do, except in the one area that matters most in your life. And that is your relationship to Christ. You might share a whole lot of other things in common, but that one you don't. And that's the most important relationship in your life. In other words, you, you couldn't be more opposite. Because your hopes are different. Your beliefs are different. Your joys are different. Your convictions are different. Your ultimate authority is different. And your worldview is different. So here's the thing. I believe that when it comes to dating and marriage, I believe that Christians need to date Christians and that Christians need to marry Christians. Now, I hear people say all the time, hey, we're going to get married and I'm going to change him. I'm going to change him. Yeah, we'll get married and I'll do this marriage evangelism kind of stuff, you know? People say that all the time. Now, I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. I just want to tell you, I have never seen it happen. It's always the opposite. The non-Christian always draws the Christian away from their faith and away from Christ and away from the church. Everybody thinks they're going to be the exception. And I'm not saying it can't happen. I've never seen it happen. And it's dangerous. So why is God being so unreasonable? I mean, if you love this person, what, why is God being so unreasonable? It's simply because you're precious to him. And his commands are for your benefit. And what God wants for you in your marriage is he wants you to have a happy marriage. He wants you to have a marriage that's based on a solid foundation. He wants you to have a marriage where you and your spouse share beliefs and values and priorities. God wants you to have the best marriage that you can have. He's not trying to be difficult and unreasonable. He's looking out for you. So let him. I know it's difficult. I know love can be you know, a strong pull in the opposite direction. But I just want to tell you today, if you're a Christian man, if you're a Christian woman, really consider, really consider what the Bible says. The second promise they make is that we promise to follow God's law related to the Sabbath. Nehemiah 10, 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. The Sabbath is a weekly day of rest. And according to Genesis, according to the creation account, God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 28, says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Uh, the Israelites were not to work on the Sabbath day, which was the last day of the week for them. And keeping the Sabbath was a distinctive practice uh, for the Jews, which wasn't practiced by the people that surrounded them. In other words, the people that surrounded them, you know, the Sabbath was just, a, just another day. 
They didn't have a distinctive day that they set aside. Nothing changed on the Sabbath. Activity and business continued as usual. And the temptation would be for the Jews to look and say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're, we're sitting here and our businesses are closed on the Sabbath. But all these people around us who are not believers, they're out there making money. So maybe we should just cheat a little bit here and open up and do some business on the Sabbath. But they're recommitting here. In this passage in Nehemiah, they are recommitting to the Sabbath. The idea that they are going to put other things ahead of making a buck. Now, Christians, we observe the first day of the week, Sunday, uh, not the last day of the week. Uh, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we celebrate that, and so we celebrate it on the first day of the week. But regardless we too are faced with a similar choice because we live in a 24-7 world. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sign that your business really gets it if it has a 24-7 sign in it. Open 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Doesn't matter if it's Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, whatever. We're going to be open for your convenience and so we can make a buck. But anyway, but we're going to be open for your convenience. That's the society we live in. Now, we're not under the Old Testament law. We're not. We are not under the Old Testament law. But there are principles here that can be applied to us. Uh, it's not a legalistic thing. I know when, when I grew up and uh, as a kid, nothing was open on Sunday. Actually, I think when we moved to West Virginia, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they call the blue laws where things were closed. They actually had to change the law. Uh, before you could open stores on Sunday. And I know that seems foreign to us. But, but even getting in that, that misses the point. It, the legalism is not the point here. The point is, and, and Jesus makes it for us, the religious leaders were getting after Jesus' disciples, or getting after Jesus because his disciples were doing things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus said, in response in Mark 2, 27, he said, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the inference that Jesus is making is the idea that God, the Creator, created the Sabbath for man's benefit. You know, God provided a special day so that men and women could rest from their labor. So that they could rest from their labor and spend time looking at their relationship with Almighty God. Spending time in renewal, not just physically, but also spending time renewing their faith. Now, they had made it in Jesus' time so regulated that it actually missed the whole point. And it was more about keeping the regulations than it was what the Sabbath was actually for. And we can get, if we want to be legalistic, we can get in that same, same boat as well. But the point is that the Sabbath is for our benefit. And it's not to be neglected. A day of rest is for our benefit. It's for our benefit physically. And it's for our benefit sp spiritually. Because if you take time off from your 24-7 life and spend time one day worshiping God, relaxing, hey, it's for your benefit. So really the choice is yours. I mean, you can, you can keep working and keep working and keep working and never take a, a Sabbath and you'll probably pay the price for it physically and spiritually. 
But God says, look, it's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. Take advantage of it. Then the third promise they make. It says, we promise not to neglect the house of God. This is the most lengthy of the promises they make. The other two are just, just one verse. This covers verses 32 through 39. And what the people are promising is that they will not rob God in their tithes and in their offerings. Now, those verses talk about some specifics of what all that entails. But really, it's summed up right at the end of, of verse 39. I'll read all of verse 39. But it says, The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. And here it is. We will not neglect... The house of our God. That sums it up. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, the Old Testament talks a lot about tithing, giving 10% of, of everything uh, to God. And a lot of people will, will say, well, you know, but pastor, that, that tithing thing, that's, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. And, and that doesn't apply to us anymore. And, and you know, I... Uh, understand that I guess though actually the the whole Bible is the whole Bible the, the Old Testament's part of the Bible too but that's not the issue either here's why I don't argue with people when they say well you know that's Old Testament I go well fine you know what the New Testament says <laughs> it's not 10% it's everything it's 100% it's 100% Acts 2 32 here's just an example just an example of how it works in practice. Uh, Acts 4.32 says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. It doesn't say, and they felt that 10% of what they owned was not their own. It says they felt that everything they owned was not their own. So they shared everything that they had. The important principle here, again, is not to get legalistic. But it's not to neglect the house of God. Now, here's the church. Uh, we never apologize for the idea and we never apologize for sharing with you that it takes money to do the work of the church. It does. It's costly to teach your children and to help them grow in the faith. It's costly to teach our young people about the faith. It's costly to have programs for adults to help you grow in your faith. It's costly to have a warm sanctuary for you to worship instead of a cold one in the morning. All of those things cost money, and we never apologize for that. Here's the other thing we never apologize for. We're the ones that are to supply it. God has given to us. We are to supply for the needs of the ministry of the church. That's something else that I never apologize for. And it really is up to you and me. And so when it comes to us and how it relates to this verse here, not neglecting the house of God, one of the ways that we need to look at that is, what are we doing? I mean, are we doing our part to see that the work of the church goes on and that the kingdom grows? Are we doing our part financially to be a part of that? You know, some people might say, well, you know, no, nah, but if this church goes under, hey, I'll just go to some other church. Well, that's all well and good, but I'm going to tell you that other church needs money too. <laughs> We're not the only one. It's, it's the way it works. Ministry is expensive, and we shouldn't apologize for it. We shouldn't be embarrassed about it. 
Why did the people, why did God want them to bring the tithes back in the Old Testament? It's for the ongoing work. Same today. It's nothing new. It's the way it works. So we don't apologize. But if we get hung up on that, then we miss the bigger point in all of this. Because in the Old Testament, you know, I, this passage is certainly talking about the support of the work of the temple. I, I won't deny that. But for us who are believers in Christ, the New Testament takes it to another dimension. And so there's more for us here. 1 Corinthians verses, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 16. says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? When we, as believers in Christ, talk about not neglecting the temple, we're not just talking about the work of the church. We're talking about ourselves because we, we are the temple. God, by his spirit, lives in us. We look around this sanctuary and a lot of times people say, well, this is the house of God. Well, I suppose God could live here if he wanted to. I don't think he does because scripture says he lives inside of you. There's nothing particularly holy about this room. We come in here and we're reverent and it's, an, it's a nice place to come and pray and, and to worship and all of that. But for those of us who are believers, it's the temple of our bodies where the spirit lives that we need to be concerned about. And are we neglecting that temple? In other words, we provide the rooms for the spirit to come and live in us. What condition are those rooms in? What condition are those rooms in? How's your spiritual life? Are, are you creating a place where the Spirit can come and truly dwell? Or are there some renovations that need to be made? Maybe some things that need to go, some closets that need to be cleaned out. But you know it doesn't stop there? Because Ephesians 2.20 says, You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In him all the parts of the building fit together and grow into a holy temple to the Lord. Through him you also are being built in the spirit together with others into a place where God lives. You see, we don't live our lives isolated from others. We live our lives in intimate relationship, not just with Christ, but intimate relationship with fellow believers. And the relationship between Christ and the individual is experienced best in the fellowship with other believers. So, are you doing your part to see that that's not neglected as well? Not just your life and where the Spirit lives in you, but, but how are you dealing with the collective where we all come together and we're all to care for one another and we're all to see to the good of one another. How are we doing there? Are we neglecting that as well? You see, we, we believers think we can pass off this Old Testament stuff as not being relevant. Man, don't, you can do that if you want. But look at, 
look at all these new things for us as believers in Christ. And they're challenges for us. But they're challenges, but they come with such a wonderful, wonderful benefit. The Spirit of God wants to live in you. Not in the building. He wants to live in you. And he wants you to join together with other spirit-filled believers and do the greatest work ever known to humankind. And that's to tell others about the love of Jesus Christ. But one of the best ways that we show the love of Christ to others is how we relate to one another. So we cannot neglect that. It's important. You don't live alone. You live with other believers in Christ. And we should neglect it. So, in your family, in your work and in your rest, uh, in your church, in your spiritual life, in your relationship with other people, are you fulfilling the promise? Or are you living the curse? Because there are things that happen when we don't fulfill the promise. I don't mean that God sends down lightning bolts and everything, but God lays out things for our benefit. Because he loves us. Because we're precious to him. And when we live in that light, we enjoy the blessings of that relationship. But if we wander from it, all sorts of things can happen that don't need to happen if we'll just stay true to our promise. So how are you doing today with those promises? I like what Charles Swindoll says, and I'm going to paraphrase. Um, actually, he sounds kind of cynical. But he says, unfortunately, many who hear this will nod in agreement, but will not follow through any further than that. They'll hear it. They'll say, yep, that's right. But they won't follow through. Don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people. Follow through with what you've pledged to Christ. Let's pray.